Well, we are in the early stages of our journey through the book of Hebrews. Again, this letter is really a sermon uh, written to this congregation, a small house church that was um, tempted, deeply tempted, to neglect their great salvation, to drift away from the truth of who Jesus is. It's important to note that this letter was written to Christians, uh, even though there is certainly a call for those who don't believe to come to Christ. He is warning those who have professed faith in Christ not to drift away from the truth that they have had. So we're going to continue looking at these four verses today, focusing especially on this phrase, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through verse 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Father, remind us right now that you have given us everything that is necessary to listen, to pay attention, to lean in to this great salvation, to not drift. But God, apart from you, we could never do it. Would you fix our eyes on you right now? Would you take the anxieties that might be consuming us and enable us to cast them on you? Would you enable us to see that which is great and primary? And would you protect us from putting secondary things in the place that they don't belong? Would you be gracious to us, God? And would you press this good news so deep into our hearts and minds that we would leave today, uh, not simply with a different color of paint on us, but a deep stain, a gospel stain that saturates so deeply into our heart and our affections that we know we've been made different today because of what we've seen and heard. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after the writer spends one chapter in focusing on the revelation of God in various ways, in various forms in the past, and then he speaks of the supremacy of Jesus, he then calls upon those who are hearing this letter read to wake up, to pay attention. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. In the Greek, that literally means the greatest attention. In other words, there's nothing more important to listen to than what I'm saying right now. But for them and for us, it's hard to pay attention because there's so much noise. 
noise wasn't the primary issue for them like it might be for us in terms of multiple distractions. It was actually news of persecution that was coming. And the cost of saying, I believe in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, I believe in Jesus as the only way, the only truth, the only life, was causing those who made such a statement to be arrested, some to be killed, families to be separated. That is happening today. Just doesn't happen much in our country right now. But it might, likely will at some point. But that was their experience. And so they were asking questions like, is it worth it? Should we return to our Jewish heritage? Should, should we reject what we have actually already embraced, the truth of who Jesus is, because I'm not sure it's worth it? And so this author, this gentle friend, this pastor comes to them and says, remember what you've heard. This has been revealed through prophets. It's been revealed by angels. Above all, it's been revealed by the Lord himself, this great salvation. But listening for all of us is hard. And last Sunday, I asked you this question. Does the intensity of your listening match the danger we're living in? Does the intensity of your listening right now match the danger of drifting? Does it match the warning that this author is putting before us? We know what it means to listen intensely. And we listen intensely when something in our affections is stirred. Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, the one who would go on to be considered the greatest American theologian of all time, speaks about religious affections. And when he uses the word religion, he's speaking of Christianity. And he's talking about affections in the human being a spring of action. I'm going to read some portion of his religious affections, which I'm going to make some comment as we go through it, but I want to invite you to really lean in. This is not hard to understand, and it's actually a profound insight into human nature. This is what Edward says. The nature of human beings is to be inactive unless influenced by some affection. What he's saying is unless today you and I are influenced by some affection, we are going to remain exactly the same as we were when we came in this place. Unless there's something that stirs us, some affection, some reality that we see and say, I need to be made different because of what I've heard, we will remain the same. But when he uses the word affection, he is not just talking about emotions of, of love and tenderness. He's talking about all sorts of affections which generate a spring of action. The nature of human beings is to be inactive unless influenced by some affection. Love or hatred. Desire, hope, fear, etc. These affections are the spring of action. The things that set us moving in our lives that move us to engage in activities. And he's right. When there's something in us that creates an affection, whether it's fear or hope or love or hatred, there's a movement that takes place. We respond with, I have to say something. I have to do something. I have to praise God or I have to flee. Whatever it is, 
But if there's no affection that moves us, we will remain as we are. Edwards goes on, when we look at the world, we see that people are exceedingly busy. Really? In the 1700s? What did that look like? Well, let me, let me remind you, they had to make their own butter. They had to kill their own food. They were busy. Not busy and distracted quite the way we are with the abundance of noise coming in, like input overload. But he was saying they were busy. And they actually were busy for exactly the same reasons. He says it is their affections that keep them busy. Whatever you're busy with right now, it's because of your affections. Whatever you're anxious about, it's because of your affections. Whatever you're driven towards, it's because of your affections. Whatever you're running from, it's because of your affections. He says it is their affections that keep them busy. If we were to take away their affections, the world would be motionless and dead. There would be no such thing as activity. It is the affection we call covetousness that moves a person to seek worldly profits. It is the affection we call ambition that moves a person to pursue worldly glory. It is the affection we call lust that moves a person to pursue sensual delights. Just as worldly affections are the spring of worldly actions, so the religious affections are the spring of religious actions. That means Christian actions are the spring of Christian affections. And then he goes on, and he begins to expose people that find themselves in churches all the time, even in reading the Bible, even in reading books about the Bible. And here's what he says. A person who has a knowledge of doctrine and theology only without religious affections has never engaged in true religion. Nothing is more apparent than this. Our religion, our Christianity, takes root within us only as deep as our affections attract it. There are thousands who hear the word of God, who hear great and exceedingly important truths about themselves and their lives, and yet all they hear has no effect upon them. It makes no change in the way they live. Why? Because the affections aren't moved. When they hear about the blood of Christ and what he had to go through that we could live forever, it doesn't move them anymore. Why? Because deep down they probably have forgotten the need they have for this great salvation. And when we fail to remember the need we have for this great salvation, we have drifted. And when we've drifted, we begin to make the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, something other than what it is essentially. And it's often many good things, but it's not that which is essential and primary. He says the reason is this. They are not affected with what they hear. In other words, if I call on us to listen intensely Sunday after Sunday, and call on us to have an intensity in listening that matches the danger, unless you think there is a danger, you're not going to listen. You might even agree with the words that you're hearing, but unless you sense there is a danger, you're not going to listen, and neither am I. There are many who hear about the power, the holiness, and the wisdom of God, 
about Christ and the great things that he has done for them and his gracious invitation to them, and yet they remain exactly as they are in life and in practice. And that's what Henry Nouwen, as I shared last week, calls an absurd life, where you hear the truth, you've heard the word of God, you've heard what Jesus says about building on the rock and about building on the sand, and then you walk away saying, but I'm gonna build on the sand. That's a dangerous drift. But if you don't believe it's dangerous, nothing in you is going to change. And if nothing in you is changing, you might not be a believer. If I didn't say that, then I'm drifting. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? And I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. It is not enough to simply know about God. It is not enough to simply be able to recite even scripture verses. The Pharisees did that. True believers are affected by this great salvation. And they're living in and under the word, desiring to bring God glory in all of their life. He finishes this section by saying, I'm bold in saying this, but I believe that no one has ever changed, either by doctrine, by hearing the word, or by the preaching or teaching of another, unless the affections are moved by these things. No one ever seeks salvation. No one ever cries for wisdom. No one ever wrestles with God. No one ever kneels in prayer or flees from sin with a heart that remains unaffected. In a word, there is never any great achievement by the things of religion, that's Christianity, without a heart deeply affected by those things. It's a powerful statement that connects beautifully with what this writer in Hebrews is saying. He is saying, if you stop paying attention, how will you escape if you neglect such a great salvation? That was the danger. The danger for those who were believers, who said, we have trusted Christ, was to drift away and neglect this great salvation, meaning that they no longer considered it great. Instead, what they had done is put a different danger, not the danger of drifting, not the danger of neglecting this great salvation. They had put the danger of being persecuted for trusting in this Savior as the primary. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks of the great danger. And I want to read something that he says that I think is very, very powerful for us today. Today, you and I, like every Sunday, come in. And with as many people who are in this sanctuary right now and those who were in the last two hours, there's a number of burdens. You come carrying the burden of, of a loved one who has a disease or one who has lost their life to a disease. Many come with the burden of, of a relationship or the lack of a relationship. 
Many come struggling with sin, like all of us, as we sang, and Tommy led us so well through that prayer, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Yet, none of those are our greatest issue. None of those are our greatest need. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you may have a broken heart, heavy over some significant need, your family, your friends, injustice in the world, chaos, fear, emotional, physical, relational needs, but this is not your first or even your greatest problem. And he's right. Your most important problem is that you have a soul within you that is immortal. Every human being has an immortal soul. All of us. We're all going to live forever. Some in glory with Christ and some forever separated from God in hell. He writes on, your most important problem is that you have a soul within you that is immortal, that you have to die, and after your death you will face God in the judgment, and your eternal destiny will be pronounced. I say therefore to you, your most urgent need is to consider your own condition before God. But what has happened, and this isn't new to today, it's true of what they were hearing back then, is that the, the consequences of living in a broken world, all the brokenness that we know so well, which the gospel speaks into every aspect of it, is not our greatest and most essential need. The greatest, most essential, eternal, primary need is that we need God to rescue us and make a way for us to be rescued from sin and death and hell. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, nothing is more dangerous than to put secondary matters in the first position. Nothing is more dangerous than to put secondary matters in the first position. God has not done that. God has given us such a great salvation. And this salvation called the gospel, that is God rescuing his people. That salvation is what is great. But why is it great? Well, first, it's great because of its author. God is the author of this great rescue. He is the author of this great salvation. This word given to us by the writer, this preacher of this little book called Hebrews, is not using an, an adjective to simply describe salvation. He's giving us the best possible literal truth about this salvation. Your greatest need is God. Your greatest need is to be rescued from this perfect, righteous God that you might live forever with him in eternity. 
God is the author of this great salvation. This salvation is his plan involving his power, requiring his presence. This gospel is not a human message. This gospel is God's word from the beginning of his holy scriptures to the end. It is the history of redemption about this holy, perfect, righteous God saying, I'm coming for my people. That's why in Genesis 3, the very first question we hear from God, and it's to Adam and Eve, is where are you? It's not a question that God doesn't know the answer to. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipresent, everywhere present. He knows where they are. But from the beginning of the Bible to the end, he's saying, I'm coming for you. I have a plan. And this plan is to rescue my people. This plan God reveals to us. Look back at Hebrews chapter 2. In the second verse, this author says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. So this message the one that he is speaking about this great salvation, about the supremacy of Christ, he's saying has been revealed by angels. More than that, it's been revealed by the prophets in the past. That's Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. More than that, it's been revealed by the Lord himself. Look at Hebrews 2, 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. That's the apostolic attestation. It is the people of God continuing that message. And that message was met with the power of the Holy Spirit in signs and wonders. So this salvation is great because God is its author. This salvation is great because he reveals to us his plan. This plan involves his power and it requires his presence. But this salvation is also great because of its cure. We all know what it's like to lose a loved one to a disease that does not yet have a cure. And we're thankful when we hear news of advancement and how different diseases are being treated and how life is continuing to go longer and longer and yet, there are diseases where there's no answer. And it's horrific to watch. But there's no disease known to man that is, in comparison, great to the disease of sin that we all have. The Word of God is very clear that Every person born is born in sin. In the Old Testament and the New, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one seeks God, no, not one. That's the reality of living with this curse, this sin. But this sin which is the worst, which affects everyone, which has an eternal reality, 
has a cure. And the cure is not lost. It's not mysterious. It's not confusing. It's clear. And this clear cure is God's plan involving his power requiring his presence. And the presence that was required was his son. His son to come in the form of a baby. To walk upon this earth, fully man, fully God, as a man, tempted just like you and me. But every time, resisting that temptation and the power of his union with the Father, every time, suffering as those temptations come. It's what you'll see in chapter 2, verse 18 in a few weeks. Every time suffering and never failing. This salvation is great because God is the author. This salvation is great because all who trust in Christ are cured from this great disease. Now, this is important. Every person born, every person, is born not spiritually sick. Your need is not to be just a little bit better, to live a little bit better Christian life. That's actually anti-gospel. Your greatest need is to recognize that the cure is in trusting Jesus alone for your salvation. This cure caused hearts that the scripture describes for all of us as dead. Paul says in Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. In other words, I cannot resuscitate myself. I cannot make myself alive. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast. But that great salvation authored by God, created by God. That salvation, which is the cure from our greatest and most dangerous need, came at a cost. And this salvation is so great because of the cost. And the cost was God's presence. The Father sending his Son to live that perfect life and then become that perfect sacrifice. So here fully present. Jesus is lifted high on the cross. There present on the cross, his blood being spilt, the wrath of the Father righteously being poured out on him. He dies. And before he dies, he says, it is finished. And what he meant by it is finished is that redemption, the redemption of my people through my death, has been paid. And so when we hear a song like, 
my Redeemer lives, or we hear the word redemption, or we hear the word salvation, or we hear the word cross, we hear the word blood, and our affections aren't moved, it's a sign of drift. It's a sign that something that is secondary is moving into the primary place. And we might not feel it at first, that's why we have reminders like this continually. And there is a warning that says, pay attention. Pay attention. If you don't pay attention, you're gonna neglect so great a salvation. And this salvation is so great that the God, the God, the one true God who made everything, holds everything in his hands, governs and controls all of his creatures and all their activities, has a plan And that plan is met by his power, and that power is in the form of his presence in his son. And his son beat death. He rose from the dead. He now lives to intercede, but he's going to return. And when he does, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some in utter delight and awe and reverence and joy and others in utter despair. And that despair will be for all eternity. If I didn't say that, I've drifted. Our greatest danger is to be separated from God for all eternity. God has met that danger by giving us his son. The reason the church, capital C, calls its members to wake up and calls its members to soak in the truth instead of just treating it like paint that goes on the surface, but like stain that soaks in, is because this is not a human message of self-help. It is the glorious gospel that goes for all eternity. And like many churches, we seek to send people out to their schools, their neighborhoods, places of work, and sometimes all over the world. About a decade ago, I was on a trip to the other side of the world to take the message that the Word of God proclaims into a closed country where it's difficult for that message to be communicated. I was with Doug Horn, Leslie Newman, and Jared Fusen. While flying over, and it's a long flight, I looked out the window and I saw one of those glorious scenes where the sun is going down and the colors are like nothing you've seen. And I was listening to a song, a song I'd never heard quite done this way. And it was being performed by Fernando Ortega. And the song was, I will sing of my Redeemer. And as I listened to that song and hit repeat, and hit repeat again, I realized I had drifted. 
I realized that I had drifted in letting many other things that are not essential to the gospel message become primary. And the essential gospel message had become secondary. That conviction was met strongly when a woman who had known the Lord for a little over a year was sharing her testimony at a restaurant, a restaurant where we were confident it wasn't being bugged. And she said to me, after she finished her speech, when you read the Gospel of John, don't you just weep? I hadn't wept in a long time. My affections hadn't been stirred in a long time. I had drifted. But the great news of the gospel is that I would never know that if the God who loved me didn't reveal that drift. And so if you're hearing today that you're drifting, don't leave saying, I have to stop drifting. I've got to right this ship. I've got to fix this. Actually, if you say that, you're even further adrift. The gospel is about returning to the God we love, turning to the one in which we're prone to wander. We wander because of our affections. We return because of a greater affection. And that's why we gather week after week and open the word day after day so that the reality of that redemption, that great salvation will not be lost on us, but it will soak into us deeper and deeper so that when we're reminded of our great, greatest need has been met by the greatest remedy the cure is Jesus, then we're unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Father in heaven, as we get ready to sing that wonderful hymn, as Fernando sings the first verse and we listen, and then as we rise, would you cause the deep affections of our heart to be in union with yours? Would you cause us to experience even the joy of returning to you whose arms are open wide, whose love sent your own son to the cross, whose love kept your son on the cross, whose love called your son from the tomb, whose love caused him to ascend, whose love has him praying for us even now, whose love will send him back. And God, may we leave confident today that when we face you in judgment, the cure is in place. We've been covered in the blood and righteousness of Christ. We are redeemed. This is true for all who have trusted in Christ. If that is not you this day, I pray you listen well to what is being offered to you in the name of Jesus. This we pray.
Amen.